Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. This episode deals with some material that, that may be difficult or, or triggering for some people. So just wanted to start off by letting you know the National Sexual Assault Hotline is available at 1-800-656-4673 if you or someone you know needs help or needs someone to talk to. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Daryland. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a case, true crime, that has ripples into the political world. Right. And that is the case of Jeffrey Epstein, who has been kind of hovering on the borderlines of political attention for a several years, right. burst back into the scene as he uh, was rearrested, charged with a, with a new set of crimes, leading to the resignation of the Secretary of Labor and more. Yes. And before we get started, I think that it, it's really challenging because I, I hear, you know, I've been reporting on this along with a host of other people. And there is a tendency to try to talk about the story of kind of like, ooh, rich people moving around. But at the at its base, this is a story about a serial sexual abuser. And I think for a lot of people, this content could be, has been really triggering. So I just want to say that the National Sexual Assault Hotline number is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. I know that the subject can be really hard for a lot of people, especially when it's coming at such a trying time for a lot of people in general. So I just want to put that forward. But I think we should just get started by... I actually want to yeah. say that if you want to tap out of this episode but still tune back in for the white paper, we're going to put the timestamp for when we start with the white paper in the show notes yes. so that you can skip the this section and then come back in for a relatively uplifting paper about civil war <laughs> pensions and uh, racial life disparities. So I think we should just get started by explaining who Jeffrey Epstein is, because I think even that has become contested because, you know, in news descriptions, people are like, oh, billionaire money manager. And then a lot of folks started asking, like, how do we know he's a billionaire? And then it turns out that he may not be entirely a billionaire. Or even really necessarily a money manager. Right. But he's some kind of rich guy. Yeah. And so his story, he is now 66 years old. He started out at Bear Stearns in the early 1980s. His exit from Bear Stearns is 
questionable. Some of the people who have said that he was running a Ponzi scheme are people who ran larger sure. Ponzi schemes. So it's a lot of crooks talking about other crooks. Well, I think we should, let's flash forward to yes. the case and then back to his backstory. Okay, that sounds good to me. So the current case that we're talking about is that he, there was a Miami Herald investigation into both his sexual abuses, but also the amazing deal he received from, at the time, top federal prosecutor in Miami, Alexander Acosta, who you may recall as having been Secretary of Labor until, you know, 15 minutes ago. That deal basically ended a federal investigation into Epstein's trafficking of young women and girls um, across state lines, which is a federal crime. And it also ensured that Epstein, who could have gone to jail for the offenses they had him for for many years, he did not go to jail for many years. He went to, and I'm I'm doing air quotes, which doesn't really come across in podcasts, he went to jail in Palm Beach where he could leave for 12 hours a day to go to an office to do whatever it is he does. And so, you know, there was... Which, for the record, is, like, not something that sex offenders are generally given. Like, there's a lot of weird stuff, even just with the chronology of this to this point, including that, like, this was originally a state investigation, and they turned it over to the FBI when there were concerns that the Palm Beach State Attorney's Office was getting involved. Right. And, like, then the, you know, U.S. Attorney's Office turns out to be perfectly willing to cut a plea deal. There there are lots of, like, weird things that they stipulated to that we'll get into a little bit later. Right. Typical. And we're still learning more. Um, you know, I got a push alert uh, this morning from NBC showing, showing that at the same time that Epstein was making this deal, he was expanding the size of his private island, which is a thing you should not probably like it just sounds like a thing you shouldn't be doing. But anyway, so Epstein. Served, so, so what was in the deal? This is a sweetheart so deal, right? He, he, he served 13 months. Uh, keep in mind, there was a 53-page federal indictment against him. But rather than deal with that, he um, served 13 months in county jail in Palm Beach. Uh, the deal also, it was a non-prosecution agreement, which shut down the ongoing federal investigation into more victims and other people being involved in the trafficking of young girls. And basically, it meant that he had to plead guilty. And I I think this is an important thing. He pled guilty to two prostitution charges. The issue being that one of his victims of um, these charges were included was under the age of, I believe, 16. And um, I'm not sure if people are aware of this, but if you are under the age of 16, you cannot be a prostitute under the law. You are a victim of sexual assault. Um, and I'm I, I'm becoming increasingly enraged as I talk about this because I find this absolutely enraging. The deal also included wording, uh, according to the Miami Herald, that granted immunity to any potential co-conspirators who were involved in Epstein's crimes. Which is just like, if you think about this, so much of this, if you think about it from the perspective of what this plea agreement is binding future and other prosecutors to is wild, right? right. Like the text of this agreement, which is you know, private, like, is 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 kept from the court, not to mention and kept, kept from, from the from victims, victims, yes. Which is, but um, it says, you know, essentially, if you are an FBI investigator trying to work a, a lead on Jeffrey Epstein a decade later, you find, you, like, come across this plea agreement and it says that even though they're not naming other potential co-conspirators, you can't go after them either. It's just a very, 
the federal government is not known for binding the hands of law enforcement investigators, never mind like binding its own hands in the future. And there's just a lot about this that is not typically how we expect prosecutors to operate. And normally, if you hear about somebody who is accused of serious crimes getting a sweetheart deal, it would be because they are turning in. Their co-conspirators, right? right. Oh, right. and this is the rather other, than the opposite. This is the other wild thing about this. This invest. This agreement says that Epstein was providing valuable information to law enforcement, right? And we do not know. It is not in that agreement what that valuable information is. Now, the Miami Herald, in this really excellent uh, investigation that came out at the end of 2018 about all of this, did kind of put some dots together and note that around this time, Epstein was testifying against a couple of his former colleagues at Bear Stearns, who were, this is the late 2000s, the mortgage crisis was happening, Bear yeah. Stearns had gone under, and they were under indictment for federal crimes. They were ultimately acquitted. So, like, there are two possible outcomes here. Either Jeffrey Epstein was giving valuable information on something that we still don't know about, that, like, its value is TBD because we don't really know how he would have contributed to it, or Jeffrey Epstein got a sweetheart deal on a bunch of sex crimes for testifying in the trial of two dudes who ultimately got acquitted of white-collar crime. I, I would also say, I mean, we know, you know, looking back 10, 11 years later, that it's it's just not the case that the federal government put a super high priority on making financial crimes cases at that time. I mean, right. you could imagine a scenario in which somebody got a sweetheart deal on sex crimes for doing um, state's evidence on some kind of terrorism charges. And I think people could debate whether or not that was a good set of priorities for the federal government to set. But it is clearly true that the federal government in the 21st century has placed a very high investigative weight on terrorism charges, right? Even if that was in some sense like a paperwork sense, like the reason he was given this deal. It's not the reason reason. Like people were not calling down from Maine justice to every U.S. attorney in America saying like, do everything we can to make cases against the bankers. Like, Especially very if much the alternative stop. is making a case against sexual abuse of minors, right. which has definitely been a priority for uh both administrations, justice departments, but right. certainly of Republican justice departments and so, for the last couple of years. And so this is the the uh, there's more to Acosta's departure from the Trump right. administration. But the it, this had sort of been known, but the Herald like really put the dot on it. That, right. Like this guy agreed to a crazy deal for no clear reason that he was ever able to articulate. Right. And even um, the Herald goes into this, and we should uh, call out the work of Julie K. Brown, who's the Miami Herald reporter who has been, like, in this from the beginning. But some of the things she points out is the um, federal prosecutors said things like that they were intimidated by Epstein's defense team, which included um, Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz, just really the— uh, the dream team of people who will defend you when you've done terrible yeah, things. Yeah, I definitely want to put a pin in that because I want to get into the defense lawyer mindset yeah, a little bit so, later. But there was a lot of conversation about how they were um, intimidating witnesses. And Dershowitz, uh, there was a New Yorker piece that came out, I believe, yesterday about Alan Dershowitz, which I think is excellent reading. But it talks about how he allegedly helped to intimidate uh, victims when people were going on their MySpace pages and just being, this young woman talked about marijuana. And I'm like, this young woman is also allegedly a victim of sexual assault, which turns out can happen at the same time. Right. But just the degree to which Epstein was protected, not just by his own defense attorneys, but by federal authorities. And the fact that like, 
One of the other things, and we'll get into this more with Epstein, is that he, one of the things that he did, and this was uh, from a piece in 2002, is that he would kind of accumulate famous people around him. And he would say things, and I think Matt will get into this, you know, he would talk a lot about his interest in science at Harvard, but he would just kind of collect famous people to be around him. And he referred to them as a collection, saying, I invest in people, be it politics or science. It's what I do. And so his entire thing was doing weird things like subsidizing scientists to research on tobacco Tibetan monks and their meditation techniques and just giving scientists millions of dollars to do this, allegedly. And also, um, he he was uh, he was buddies with Donald Trump. Right. And Bill Clinton. And, and gave Bill Clinton, uh, I guess, in the in the early days of the Clinton Foundation, yes. was a sort of frequent uh, air service for Bill Clinton on right. some of his trips to Africa. Right. right. But the degree to which he felt comfortable with both having the legal protections that he had and kind of the friend circle he thought, I think in some senses would like protect him. You know, there's uh, Michael Wolff at Vanity Fair. He wrote a piece, there was a piece in uh, 2007 in New York Magazine. And it, it's funny because Jeffrey Epstein in New York circles, and I'll get into this in a little bit, was like a very well-known person who would show up at famous people events where famous people do famous people things. And uh, he was always surrounded by, to quote Wolf. How shall I say this? By three teenage girls, not his daughters. And uh, well, at one point when his troubles began, and tr by troubles, I mean legal investigations into the sexual abuse of young women. Uh, you know, he would say, he was talking to me and said, what can I say? I like young girls. And I said, maybe you should say, I like young women. This is someone who thought they could get away with it and essentially did. And right. even in New York, which is where... Um, there are new arising charges because more people have come forward. New York District Attorney's Office, which uh, currently led by Cy Vance, attempted to help Jeffrey Epstein by having him reduce his sex offender status to the lowest possible classification, which would have kept him from being on the sex offenders registry and limited the amount of personal information you could find about, about him. For example, if you go to New York State website right now, you can see where Epstein is in jail. Um, and like the number of his vehicles and what the license plates and things like that, that's general information if you are on a sex offenders list. And I think it's it's worth noting that like for many people who wind up on this list and e even in Florida and elsewhere, like the restrictions on sex offenders are intended to be extremely burdensome. Right. They're and they have to be social death. Yeah, it's basically you cannot be within certain yards of a school or a playground. You know, there's... um a community in Florida in which like, it's a group of people who are sex offenders who are currently living under a bridge because of where they're restricted to live. But if you're Jeffrey Epstein, you do not have this. And even in this, as reported by the New York Times, when the prosecutor asked this judge to reduce his sex offender status, the judge said, I have never seen a prosecutor's office do anything like this. And, you know, there's still really been no explanation. He was supposed to check in as a sex offender uh, with the NYPD. He never did. He missed uh, more than 30 check-ins with NYPD because reasons. And typically, you know, if you miss, if and, and if anyone um, listening, I know I have some friends who have been public defenders in New York. If you miss one of those check-ins for most normal people, you go like you go back to jail unless you're Jeffrey. Epstein. And it's almost so, right. So I feel like over the last several weeks since this was really there was the Miami Herald investigation late last year kicked off a big like, wow, this is an extremely damning thing to point out about a member of the cabinet. Um, 
but didn't go anywhere, won a Pulitzer Prize, I believe, um, despite the efforts of Ellen Dershowitz. But like it was the rearrest of Epstein earlier this summer that kicked off a lot of like what's been kind of an ongoing reckoning on two tracks, right? One is the legal, like, how did Alexander Acosta write such a plea deal, you know, getting him out of office, thinking about what the office of Cy Vance is doing, like, how has there been so much special treatment toward this dude? And the other one is a social reckoning of like, how is someone who was in elite circles for decades, who everyone appears to have palled around with, who you can, if you go back and look at pieces like the, you know, Vanity Fair piece, other profiles that have been written of Jeffrey Epstein, there are lots of things that read extremely awkwardly now. And like, don't appear to have been like the benefit of hindsight either. Like it reads very much like they should have set off some alarm bells for someone at the time. And so the kind of social reckoning of how is this so widely known and yet no one appeared to ostracize Epstein socially because of it is the other weird thing. And of course, the reason that this is so difficult to discuss is because the legal and social reckonings are coming together, right? Because the reason the legal reckoning exists is because Epstein was so well enmeshed in social circles. And it raises a lot of really uncomfortable questions about like, if we think we live in a society where there is no such thing as impunity because of like aristocracy, how do we explain what has happened to Jeffrey Epstein? Right. And I think that you see this, uh, the New York Magazine did a really terrific piece uh, called Who Was Jeffrey Epstein Calling? A Close Study of His Circle, because in uh, while Gawker still existed in 2015, they published his little black book, which had surfaced after a former employee took it around 2005 and tried to sell it. The former employee, by the way, received jail time. Um, and you know, he had it basically contains the numbers and phone numbers of victims and social contacts. And among them, it's like Prince Andrew and like just a host of people where where a lot of the titles are socialites. Mm-hmm. And it it is really interesting also because I think something that's important, I think a, a lot of people, um, especially kind of feminists have been pointing this out, is that the reason, in some senses, why Epstein got away with this is, um, one, he tended to target young women who were in kind of dire straits. Um, the number of his victims have talked about how he basically, or the people around him, would recruit them when they were most in need. But also, again, I want to make it clear, these were very young people. You know, these were girls who were 14 who still had braces on. And, you know, they, some of the victims have talked about that there was like a before him and an after him and how much that changed their life. But also the idea that like being surrounded by 15, 16, 17-year-old girls was just something like, oh, that's a thing. Like, oh, that's just Jeffrey. And you hear this again and again about how, you know, even in Trump, his interview with New York Magazine said something like, oh, he he might, he loves beautiful girls as much as I do. Right. It has even been said that he likes them, you know, that he likes them young or something. Yeah. Like that. And just it's said in such a way that you're like, this was, you know, and I think about this. I spent a lot of time um, thinking and writing about the Larry Nassar case and USA Gymnastics. In that case, you very much had a sense in which it was the fact that he was ma- masquerading that as a medical treatment. But also, you know, I remember hearing from people who like, you know, well, he's going after like 16, 17 year olds. That's very, you know, and trying to make the same as of like, oh, that's that's very different from going after children. Right. So let's 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 take a break because I, I want to talk about some of the, the overdetermined right. aspects of this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. 
Affordable, high-quality, basic healthcare for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that healthcare is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So, you know, unfortunately, it's, you would almost like to run, you know, social science experiment where you can try different versions of crimes here. Because clearly, like, one important aspect of this is just a sense among many people that the sexual abuse of teen girls by older men is not actually a serious crime, yes. right? Like, that's like a, a, a subtext, what you see in these profiles, right? Where it's not like, ha ha ha, he likes to murder people, yeah. right? Because like, that's not a joke you would make, right? And so clearly, like, one of the reasons why it seems like he was able to get off light on these charges was a sense that even though, like, legally speaking, this is rape, like people, do, many people do not actually see it that way. Right. Right. Yes. And like that's part of what is happening here. Another part of what is happening here is that we have a very inequitable criminal justice system in a way that I think is important. I I, I was thinking about this all the time in the, the Ronald Sullivan case at Harvard, which was a big to-do about a professor there who, who ran a dorm who was joining Harvey Weinstein's defense team. Mm-hmm. And There was a lot of pushback, a lot of pushback in the media saying that, like, it impugns the principles of America's adversarial criminal justice system to castigate an attorney by which clients he chooses. And to me, the Epstein case, like the Weinstein case, like, I don't think that this is true. I think it is convenient for members of the criminal defense bar to believe that extremely vigorous defense of wealthy defendants is like a close cousin to helping indigent defendants. But I think that you see time and again in America that that's not actually right, that actually 
part of the political stability of the extreme harshness of America's criminal justice system is a shared understanding that wealthy people will not be subject to that harshness. Right. That if you can hire really good attorneys and can credibly represent to prosecutors that you can keep paying those attorneys legal bills, that the prosecutors have a strong incentive to strike a generous deal with you. Mm. Right. That it's not they don't get like extra money for taking on a hard case all the way to trial. They've got a lot of stuff to do. And like fighting Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr and a million other people is like not necessarily like what the system is built to do, right? So so I think like you you really should ask defense attorneys who you know I mean like if you want to support public defenders, you should support public defenders. Um, but if you are out there, you know, as Alan Dershowitz is in this case um, and other people are in other cases, like taking like the deep pocketed defendants and getting them special treatment, you're not fixing inequities in the criminal justice system. You are exacerbating them. Right. But then another level <laughs> to Epstein is, I, I mean— this gets into conspiratorial territory. That, that's been the entire but, thing with this, is that, like, there have been a lot of people who are like, does this mean Pizzagate was right? No, it means that, you know, sexual abuse happens among, like, every strata of society. But every piece of the story does kind of edge into conspiracy Because you land. get into then the question, you yeah. step at a high level, it's like, rich guy charged with a crime. We don't always take sexual abuse of teenage girls as seriously as we should. Um, the criminal defense system is inequitable. Political connections help. Okay, so like you're starting to get a picture of the story. Then it's the other story, which is that it's totally unclear how he got to be so rich, right? And he was working as a math teacher at my high school, and a student there's dad recommended him to Bear Stearns, which I don't think is how investment banks normally get their people. Well, especially because it's not exactly like he had this sterling record as this, you know, absolute genius who respected. Yes, there's that. But but even like at Dalton, like to be fully clear about this, the the story of Jeffrey Epstein at Dalton is that he got hired because of a very controversial headmaster who liked him. And then there were reports of him being too friendly with students, right? And eventually that headmaster, by the time I was a student there, was forced out in a sex scandal. So, you know, one thing leads to another. At any rate, now he's working at Bear Stearns. Then he goes from Bear Stearns and he has his own firm. And then there's this follow-up reporting, and it's you can't prove a negative exactly. But people keep saying, look, it doesn't seem like he actually made this money, like trading options. Like it, it doesn't we, – we tend to know how the most successful hedge fund managers made their money because their trades become visible. And you're like, aha, you know, uh, George Soros made all this money shorting the British pound. And then when they had to break their their trading bin, like he made billions of dollars. And so we can tell that story. Nobody can tell the story of how Jeffrey Epstein made all this money. Right. And he had extraordinarily close relationships with several of his clients, including most notably the Victoria's Secret guy. Uh, Leslie Wexner, who referred to him as a most loyal friend with excellent judgment and unusually high standards. And Ooh. to the extent of like everything about it is like 
like Epstein was trusted uh, Victoria's Secret, which I find very funny because in the old catalogs, they always use the British spelling of everything. It's based in Ohio. And one of the things that Wexner did was like, okay, I'm going to go to New Albany, Ohio, and I am going to like rebuild this town. And who helped him? Jeffrey Epstein. Right. So, so his number one con, I mean, so you have a guy, right? Like, sexual abuser, his number one client who he has a weird relationship with, like Epstein had a power of attorney over this guy's fortune. So it's not like a normal money manager type stuff. And like he runs a freaking lingerie company, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. the implication across all of this, and to be clear, like the reporting has not demonstrated this, but what is being driven at, I would say, by a lot of these investigations is the possibility that Epstein's professional work for his financial clients is directly connected to this question of trafficking in underage girls and procurement of prostitution. That like we know in the financial services industry that whining and dining of clients is like something that you do. Right. And if you happen to have some unusual tastes in that regard and can find clients, like maybe there's something there. Now, again, like I I don't want to libel anybody. We don't know what's going on, but there is not a like clear, overt explanation of what it is this relatively small number of people were doing, entrusting all their money to this sex criminal. Yeah. And I understand. I mean, it's so freaking hard, especially because. You know, to have had Pizzagate three years ago and to now be dealing with a world in which, like, it is very hard to look at the facts of this case and go, oh, yes, but if something more overt were to happen, then surely law enforcement yeah. would have been all over it. Right. It's kind of the best way I can think of to, to put that. But, like, you know, I think that it's very difficult to kind of, you know, to prove negatives here, to um, to assert why people would have been friends with someone that's always, like— I mean, as as weird as the sycophancy directed toward Epstein is, like you have like Harvard physicists saying he has the mind of a physicist. And then you read the actual things Jeffrey Epstein is saying that are supposedly so smart. And it's like, dude, you sound like a freshman stoner. Right. Um, But, you know, the sycophancy is weird. But I think it's easier to point out that regardless of what the positive motivation for friendship with Epstein was, nobody saw the girls thing as a deal breaker, right? right? And this gets, I mean, this is something that you were pointing to earlier, Jane, but it also, there's an essay um, that you should that we'll put in in show notes uh, that was posted on The Cut by Lisa Miller that very provocatively and maybe not 100%, like, maybe you take this with a grain of salt, but lays this at the feet of the fact that this entire generation of dudes is a product of the sexual revolution and that there was such an emphasis there on the, you know, freeing of the male libido in the name of liberation and that, you know, clearly that like sex was always healthy. And, you know, the way that she puts it is that it reduced sexual violence to a matter of taste. And you don't necessarily have to believe that, you know, everyone who Jeffrey Epstein ever interacted with was interacting with him for the purposes of sleeping with young girls to understand how the lines between oh, I am socializing with this person. I am at this person's parties where there are young girls around. You know, there are so many, like, 
lines here that could be crossed that seem very bright to us, but may seem less bright if you have become an adult in an age where you're being told that there is nothing harmful about right. sex. And I also think, um, I want to go very quickly back to the point about, like, no one knows how we made this money. Uh, another great piece in New York Magazine um, talked to people who uh, actual hedge fund managers who basically were like, we've never traded with him. We've never had anything to do with him. And there are not that many New York-based hedge fund managers on earth. And no one knew who he was. But I, I, going to Dara's point, I think that that's been something that's been challenging is that, you know, there have been a lot of people who want to use the Epstein case as like a political cudgel. Mm -hmm. And I think it's almost helpful that you can't really do this because this is a, it cuts across political ideology and because you know you had Katie Couric went to his went to one of his parties but Donald Trump was around like you had people from you know who from across a you know political strata but all a part of this very wealthy part of New York and Palm Beach society where everyone kind of knew each other of course you would go to his parties or something like that but the idea that you would see that and again not think like that's weird, but also think of it, you know, you heard in, especially in early writings about Epstein, as you note, that the girls are kind of brought up as like, oh, that's interesting. And it almost reminds me a little bit of, you know, if anyone watched E! in the early 2000s, they remember the show about Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Mansion and Girls Next Door. And kind of that was just like, oh, this is like an interesting television show about these interesting people, except that, you know, the requirements of being one of the playmates closest to Hugh Hefner was to have sex with Hugh Hefner. And it's just this idea of like how this is posited that you would go to these parties. And, you know, one of the things also about Epstein is that he got very close with like women who were perceived as being very powerful or strong or something like that. There was something, a line of like, he would date women and then he would like stop dating them, but then they become friends and they'd like move up in his circles. And some of them were obtaining girls for him, but also this idea that like the girl, the women weren't opposed to this or didn't say anything. So I agree with this high-minded take, but I do also want to make a narrow partisan point, which yes. is that there is something extraordinary about the fact that the Trump administration, the Trump transition team, having had one labor secretary's nomination be spiked because it turned out that he was beating his wife, right. went as their number two to this guy who, like, it was known at the time, like, this was in the coverage at the time that he'd struck this shady plea deal that the victims were complaining about and were trying to get the legal machinery turning to get some to get this overturned somehow, and that, like, neither their internal vetting team nor Senate Republicans, like, pumped the brakes on this at some point to be like, can we take a closer look at this situation? Because as soon as the Miami Herald took a closer look at the situation, the whole thing became untenable. Right. And so now, of course, like, Donald Trump is really sloppy in his vetting, like, on some level, like, we know that. It's very Trump era that, like, a cabinet secretary was forced out of his position because um, he had brokered some kind of corrupt sweetheart deal with a major sex criminal. And that's like, we're talking about it now, but like the political news cycle has like moved on to seven new Trump scandals, right. including like taking bribes from the Saudi Arabia to export nuclear weapons technology to them. But like we are running an incredibly slipshod. Right. 
presidential administration here, of which, like, the way that this just kind of passed in and out of the gates is, like, one of many, many, many examples. Right. I mean, it definitely does say something about the way we expect news cycles to work, that this is no lo- this is no longer a political story now that Alex Acosta is out. Right. Uh, and it's now a social story, even though, like, the kind of social story involves, in large part, uh, looking back at reports of Jeffrey Epstein hanging out with Donald Trump and Tom Barrack, who was on the transition team in the 90s. And so, you know, there was... The, I, this is v- going to sound very far afield, but I promise it's a useful comparison. Uh, Politico magazine ran a story recently about Mike Pence getting a potential federal judgeship nomination scotched because the nominee, potential nominee was in his state government in Indiana. And so he was worried and his team were worried that if you put this guy up for confirmation hearings, there would be a lot of tough questions about what he was asked to defend in Indiana. And like not necessarily even assuming anything corrupt or scandalous on Pence's part. They were just like, you know what? There are some controversial things in here that we don't particularly want to remind the public that we did when we were in Indiana state government. Why don't we not provide the Senate with an opportunity to ask these questions? The fact that Tom Barrick didn't have that thought about, gee, it's very easy to go from Alex Acosta to Jeffrey Epstein. It's very easy to go from Jeffrey Epstein to like me and the president and other people on this team. And that that wasn't a reason to stop it says a little bit about the slipshodness. It also says something about the completely accurate calculation that the Donald Trump team has made um, that has only been proven more correct with time that sexual morality doesn't hurt them at all because they have a large swath of evangelicals who have convinced themselves that like he is, you know, a like yeah. world historical great leader. What right. You know, they start using the biblical story of David, which apparently they didn't finish because, you know, it ends with more difficulty for King David than perhaps the story uh if you work at Liberty University, the story you're telling. But I think that currently Epstein's in jail. Um there was you know, there will be more movement soon, more vic- like more victims are coming forward. But I think the fact that Alexander Acosta thought that you because there was talk that this wasn't the big issue for Acosta, but it's his views on trade that were going to be the big challenges. And the degree to which the administration attempted to defend Acosta, including having him do a press conference, which was not a good idea. No, and it does seem like ultimately the I mean, the the reason this knocked Acosta out is that Mick Mulvaney had been clashing with him over Basically, Mulvaney wanted Acosta to do some legal envelope pushing in terms of implementing conservative uh, anti-union policies. That's why he was vulnerable to being pushed out in scandal. Um, And in some ways, it it cut the whole politics news cycle of this short. Um, But, you know, I mean, the other thing that that I do think you, you see here, something you mentioned before, is like part of the social context for... Epstein being buddies with pre-politics Donald Trump and with post-politics Bill Clinton was, I think, a sense for a number of decades that um, a certain kind of sexual libertinism should be seen as in alliance with a certain kind of feminism right, as opposed right. to a certain kind of scoldy, churchy, sexual right? And that a, a bit, something you've seen on a rolling basis in the Me Too era, I think, is a reevaluation of that right. constellation of forces and a little bit more of an appreciation of a Andrea Dworkin kind of 
Yeah, this has definitely been a reading about the Epstein case. I've definitely been like, I think Andrea Dworkin was right the whole time. But no, this idea, and you know, I think that there's been a lot of conversation about this with regard to Bill Clinton. Um, the Slow Burn podcast goes into this quite a bit. But yeah, this the the level of kind of perceived acceptability. And you know, it, it's telling that one of the people Epstein found the most bond with was Woody Allen, mm-hmm. um, who would know something about, you mm-hmm. know being an inappropriate, trashy person. Um, but this, you know, this kind of, that was kind of something a, a cut across ideological silos. And now you're seeing that with Republicans who, you you know, there's this idea, and I think that it's worth challenging that, like, things about Trump are now baked in. But there's also an idea of, like, what exactly people know about Trump, you know, what is baked in. But I do think that there's a sense of, like, we didn't elect a choir boy. But I'm like, no, there's a difference between a choir boy and palling around with Jeffrey Epstein. And I think that there are a lot of questions that remain to be asked about that. I think it's important that we keep in mind that these are at point, you know, this has not yet gone to trial. We've got, there's a lot more to learn. But I do think that there's a sensibility here that Epstein, it's not like he was trying to get away with it. He just seemed to get away with it by happenstance. You know, he moved to New York and had fancy parties at his very large home that was full of extremely creepy things like statues of eyeballs and members of his staff made into giant sculptures to be chess pieces you could move around. And people are like, hmm, that seems normal. Honestly, I'm interested that you went with Bill Clinton because this brings me back to Alan Dershowitz, right? Because there's something about, like, the kind of defense lawyer's argument here that, like, you can see a world in which this happens in a purely consensual fashion that strikes me as both very illustrative and very disingenuous, right? Like, Alan Dershowitz has, you know, one of the things he's recently trying to to defend himself of that's kind of come to light as people have put together some puzzle pieces of his past in mm-hmm. context of the Epstein stuff, is an op-ed he wrote way back in the 90s about how, like, statutory rape doesn't, you know, hold water because te- teenagers should be informed enough to consent to sex. And, like, that makes sense from a very mid-century liberal, of course, you want to emphasize the agency of women. Like, and he brought up, like, good Romeo and, and Juliet cases, right. which, you know, and I think it's worth noting here, because um, I've had these conversations there are some cases in which, you know, someone is 16, but they're dating an 18-year-old, mm-hmm. and then the 18-year-old is charged with statutory rape, and that is not this. But to make the 90s politics explicit, he yeah. says in there, look, if you think a 16-year-old should be able to get an abortion— mm-hmm. she should be able to consent to sex right. with an older man, right. right? And that is, like, exactly the—I think, like— that that was on point, I think, to like '90s liberalism as an argument. Yeah, absolutely, and and so much of the kind of the way to square if you're someone who is kind of either dealing with whiplash, looking back at like, oh my god, how would feminists in the '90s like not have been like obviously, a de- you know, yeah. how did anyone allow this to happen at the time? Or looking forward to like, wow, how did liberals get so prudish about sex? Like. The answer here is that the idea of power has become more central to feminism over the last, maybe even just arguably the last decade. And so the specifics of these cases, the difference between a Romeo and Juliet 18 and 16 year old and a case in which, you know, someone is like finding near homeless 14 year olds and cultivating them matters a great deal. And like it doesn't necessarily matter to you if you're in rarefied intellectual circles where the purpose of this is largely a thought experiment or an op-ed or a defense or or like or if you're a defense attorney who is trying to make the most airtight logical case for your client. But when we're talking about 
law, logic and morality exist in really close quarters. And so, you know, getting back to, Max's po- to, getting back to Matt's point about the, cha- chain, the choices you make as a defense lawyer, like, it's actually very important to the way that Harvard Law School trains its students to have them have someone on staff, dem- on faculty demonstrating that, like, yes, even the hardest seeming case, you should be able to make a vigorous defense for your client, not necessarily because it's morally important that a vigorous defense be made, but to demonstrate that it's possible because many of you guys are going to be going out to big law where you're not going to have the choice of your clients, but you're going to have to make the most airtight case. Like the idea that making the strongest case and not picking who you're representing is an important, you know, principle of the legal profession is really baked in, but blurs the line when we're talking about lawyers as public figures or when we're talking about people in their private lives. And the liberal idea that once you've made the airtight logical case for why something could be okay, looking at the specific power dynamics of the situation becomes less important is something that I think has not gotten a lot of traction among younger progressives and probably is not, you know, to the extent that like it's that that you can draw a line from that to Jeffrey Epstein is probably not going to age very well. Right. Take a break and do a white paper. Sounds great. All right. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
So you have today Physician Bias and Racial Disparities in Health, Evidence from Veterans' Pensions by Shari Eli, Trevin Logan, and Boryana Milucheva. Um, it, this is looking at uh, Civil War pensions, which gives us, uh, it's one of these things where like it's a rich administrative data set, so people study it a lot. Uh, but but also it's a really interesting thing that they are looking at, uh, and they look at basically doctor, to get a pension, you had to be certified as disabled. Um, and so you needed a doctor to certify that, and they are able to look at, you know, who got certifications, and they see that doctors were much, much, much more reluctant to certify African-American veterans as disabled. Consequently, they got much stingier pensions, and then they able to do a lot of statistics, which demonstrate that actually this disparity in the income levels is enough to fully account for a subsequent gap in mortality. Um, but, but to me, I mean, it's just the sort of baseline discrimination finding that is very interesting. Um, what interested me about it, actually, is I, I was at a conference recently, and uh, we got to talking about um, racial wealth gap in the United States, and we got to talking about very um, complicated and sophisticated ideas, which I think are important. I don't, I don't discourage people to think about complicated and sophisticated ideas. But there's a lot of evidence for just like like really basic discrimination. Um, there are good like audit studies of names on resumes. There's this study about the pensions. And in a weird way, I mean, I, I, I always want to encourage smart people to like not fall too in love with like their own like really impressive smart ideas. Because I, I feel like in some of these conversations, we can just like talk past the evidence for like the most banal forms of discrimination being significant drivers of important sorts of, of outcomes. And they connect this in the paper to a, a literature about um, present day medical treatment in which like African-Americans um, uh, don't get as much like pain medicine and are just like not believed by white doctors. Right. And, you know, there's been interesting research even just on the idea of doctors thinking that African-Americans are less prone to feel pain. Even some research on the I, the belief, this is not true, that Black people have, and I mean this literally, thicker skin. So, for example, with regard to getting sh giving shots to children, the idea that you could use a larger gauge needle because Black people would have thicker skin, which, again, is not true. Which is also something you see in, like, testimony of police officers who have shot African-Americans yep. like, oh, you know, I they 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 didn't they they were in a rage. They I didn't know what to do. I don't I didn't think I could stop them. They were so strong. Um, and the other interesting side note here is that to the extent that the opioid epidemic has become coded as a white thing, uh, even though it's not even though like heroin in particular is not is not exclusively a white drug by any means. Um that's because the narrative of, oh, it starts when you get when you have something that a doctor thinks you need pain medication for and so prescribes you opiates for pain. There definitely is suggestive research that African-Americans were less likely to be hooked on pain meds by doctors right. because African-Americans were being under prescribed pain meds. But to get back to kind of Matt's point about the way that we think about um, large scale racism, I think that. A lot of the reason that it's tempting to look at um, more complicated explanations is because the alternative is one of two things. The alternative is you think of an in, of like interpersonal racism as the result of a few bad apples, and then you start going, okay, 
how do we get the bad apples out? Or you're faced with the po- the possibility that large groups of people are engaging in behavior that has racist consequences. Yep. And that's where we get into the entire intentionality argument about, oh, you shouldn't call people racist. Oh, it's counterproductive to call people racist, that kind of thing. And while I think that it often does kind of reduce the car- the argument to talk about intentions rather than consequences, et cetera, et cetera, like it's helpful to have something like this where we can very easily look back and say, yeah, I am comfortable saying that most white doctors in the mid-19th century were racist toward black patients. Right. And like that is a moral judgment that people are comfortable making. It should not be more difficult to look at similar evidence to the extent that it exists today and say, I am comfortable saying that large numbers of people who may be alive today or whose children may be alive today engaged in racist behavior because that is what the data shows. And more importantly, because identifying that is what it's going to take to solve the problem. We can't bank shot our way out of it, which is, I think, the reason other than just like intellectual humility for accepting this kind of thing is like, it's very easy to say, well, if racism is a complicated problem, the solution must be complicated. Whereas if some of it is just people treating people differently, you can't work around that very right, well. Exactly. And I think it's worth it's worth saying here that one of the challenges is that, you know, people are like, well, you know, I don't know if he's racist because I can't look into his soul when it just is like you can look at the things this person has said or done or the actions they've taken and that will tell you because i think that there's this idea that like you know if you are a racist that is your number one dedication you are you know the richard spencer of the world like you know your primo job is being a racist that's what you know it comes up top on your cv that's not how this works. That's not how it ever has worked. People are fully capable of being full-fledged human beings with jobs and identities and people they love and racist all at the same time. You know, And I think that that's been what this has looked like for the course of human history. To me, an interesting thing about the political context for this, right, is that the post-Civil War era is a little bit unusual in American politics in that many people were very comfortable being overtly racist at that period in time. So you wouldn't have the, like, the, like, Trump thing where you like keep saying racist stuff and your whole political strategy is to like whip people up into a racial fury. But then you're like, I'm not a racist. You're the racist, right? Like white supremacists in the 1890s were comfortable labeling themselves as such. Mm -hmm. But also white supremacy was very actively contested at that point in time, right? Which is to say that if congressional Republicans had wanted to create a racially discriminatory pension system, they just would have. You know what I mean? Like, there there wouldn't have been, like, in the modern day, you just, like, wouldn't write a law that says, like, and then the black veterans get less money. But, like, the army units were segregated at the right, time. Right. There was a lot of to, yeah. formal discrimination in the American legal system at the time. Right. They, what are you going to use? The Civil Rights Act? Right. Like, they didn't put formal discrimination into this pension system. Like, they were trying to treat black and white veterans equally. But then they didn't. Right. Because of the, the, this discrimination at the doctor level. And that is why I think it's it's important to, to zero in on because, like, it shows that if you want to have an e- equitable outcome, you really may want to rely on some very crude checks. Right. Where you say, like, we are going to report back and see if black veterans are being assigned pensions at a much lower rate. And if they are, we are going to assume that something has gone wrong, right? And this is like a disparate impact kind of standard, right? Because, of course, it's going to be so hard to look at a doctor 
and like what he is doing and show a discriminatory pattern, much less a discriminatory intent. But it's really easy to see in the aggregate here that this is what's happening. And unlike in certain other cases, I mean, we have pretty good reason to believe that the legislative architects of this system like genuinely did not want this outcome. Uh, but it's the outcome that they got because they didn't try hard enough to avoid it, which I think you you have a lot in America. I mean, I think there is a lot of reluctance to rely on like crude quota systems and things like that, that like people want to say like, well, we're going to do something like really fancy or like have like workshops and, and, and solve things. Um, but like you have a lot of really sort of basic problems can arise and sometimes benefit from crude solutions. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's basically a trilemma of uh, racial justice and social policy, right? On the like prong one because racism is a big, messy, complicated problem that with a lot of layers, race-blind solutions may end up, uh, because of existing inequities, not having, you know, race-neutral outcomes. Two, talking about policy in explicitly racial terms provokes a huge backlash. Um, even, but, but three, also, talking about policy in race-neutral terms that your opponents can say is code for a, you know, for a racially based policy can itself result in a huge backlash. Like the idea that Obamacare was primarily for black people, the idea that, you know, black Americans are the predominant beneficiaries of the welfare state kind of thing. Like you didn't need to portray any of these programs as black programs or even have them, in fact, benefiting mostly black individuals to have them coded as another way that African-Americans sap the wealth of the state. And like, I don't know how you get past... Never mind the first prong of that, which is a policy problem. I don't know how you get past the second and third political prongs of that. Right. I have no idea. It's it's discouraging. The weeds. And we have no answers. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Uh, problems without answers. Uh, you, you hate to see it. Um, <laughs> but but there we are. Um, so so thanks. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. Uh, and the weeds will be back uh, after the debates with an, another uh, po- post-debate wrap episode with me and Ezra. Bye. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.